0: The word uncommon is defined as not ordinarily encountered. In other words, you don't see it every day. Nobody likes to be common. I mean, it used to be a pejorative term. In previous centuries, a commoner. No one likes to be average. Something about being average just doesn't fit well with us. I used to live in Sacramento. Sacramento was known for being the capital of California, the poorest country in the world. (laughs) That's a joke. Hang with it. Really, it'll build. It's also known for being average. Marketing firms use Sacramento as a baseline in order to test things because it's the average American city. We didn't particularly like that. Nobody really likes to be called average. In fact, there are studies, there's an actual effect that's sometimes jokingly referred to as the Lake Wobegon effect from uh, Garrison Keillor's writings where in Lake Wobegon, every child was above average. You know, in studies... In any field, nobody considers themselves average. In academics, the University of Nebraska, a recent study was done among professors, and 68% of them said they were above-average teachers. Now, they're PhDs, I assume, and they must know that literally that can't be true. I drove yesterday. I think many people are bad drivers, not including me. However, do you know in statistics, 93% of American drivers say they're above average? 93% of you all statistically think you're above average drivers. You're not average. You're certainly not below average. I think that 93% of Americans are below average drivers, which is just my own perspective anyway. How does this happen? You, really, you can go into any field. And the vast majority of people believe they're above average, where everybody is slightly above average and nobody is below. How does this happen? It's because we hate average. No one wants to be common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill. And so I would say that many of us spend a considerable, considerable part of time trying not to be average, trying not to be normal. And some of us achieve that more than others. But we'll try it with clothes, with music, most of you don't like, if I say, oh, you listen to mainstream pop music, everything within you wants to go, oh, no, no, (laughs) I don't listen to the mainstream. I listen to something that's more alternative. Very few people know about it. And then before long, of course, the alternative becomes mainstream. And then we must get rid of it. Why? Because we, come on, we are not average. We're significantly above average. We fight really hard not to be ordinary. However, you realize, of course, that if everybody's doing this, it's the most common thing in the world. Among the most common traits of humanity, particularly of Americans, is to fight to be not common. It's the most common thing in the world. When we go into this series, which is on money, We're going to talk about an uncommon view of life. We will at times talk about giving, at times we'll talk about purchasing, but we're talking about things that lay below the surface of that, which is that Jesus' called for us to live different. I'm going to say that differently. Jesus' invitation for us to live differently, to live truly uncommon lives, lives that are almost inexpressibly free and generous and beautiful. And this morning, I want to look at a passage which is out of the ordinary for a financial series. Of course, that's what I would want to choose, and it may not be out of the ordinary at all, because I don't want it to be an average passage. It must not be. The jokes, really, they come fast and furious this morning, so you've got to be on your toes. In... a The Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the stories of Jesus' life, there's a passage toward the end, which is actually after he has died. And there's this really interesting sort of passage, and this is what it says. Okay, he's dead now. It's important to know that. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now, I think it's really easy to look at that passage and go, Isn't that nice? What a nice gesture this guy Joseph did. Jesus was dead, and he gave him his own tomb because he didn't have one of his own. And honestly, when I look at this passage, I think, This is ludicrous. Really, what in the world is this guy doing? I can make a fairly significant argument that what he's doing is an absolute catastrophic waste of time and energy. Jesus is dead. Joseph has no idea about the whole resurrection thing that's going to happen. He's dead. In other words, this is going to make no difference to him whatsoever. And he gives him his tomb. Now, to give you a little context on why this was a curious action, Joseph was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one of the religious leaders of the time. And in that culture, it was more than religious. It was a position of prestige and power. He was also likely a member of the the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of 70. Really, in many ways, you could view them almost as if they were aristocracy. It was often handed down through through, um, family these people were extremely well-educated, and they were wealthy. That's who he was, a man of great wealth and power and influence. Now, if you know the story at all, you know that Jesus was put to death by the wealthy and the powerful and the influential, from the Romans to the Jews. They all he, he, he made them uncomfortable. And so the very people had him put to death. And Joseph walks up to them, and he says to Pilate, I like Jesus's body. I'm going to put him in my tomb. This is a problem. Seriously, at this point, people are going to get killed for being Jesus's followers. So if you're one of Jesus's followers, you don't go tell other people about it. Certainly not like this. You don't go to the very people, who put him to death and said, you know what? I'd like to do something nice for him now that he's dead. Because what they do is they take out their list and they go, <laughs> Joseph, that's Mark. He's, he's one of them. You know, what's, let's, let's put him on the naughty list. You know, he's, 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 he's lined up for execution. Next time there's going to be any sort of vote. Should we have Joseph stay in the Sanhedrin? I don't think so. He risks his life, his prestige, his power, and a not insubstantial amount of money with a tomb that he had carefully had constructed for him at no small cost, cut for him. He takes all of that investment, that investment of his personal security, of his status, of his influence, and of his wealth, and he, in my opinion, by any common measure, throws it away. Because Jesus is dead. He gives him his tomb. I can make a fairly substantial case that if Jesus is really dead, he will not know the difference, nor will anyone else. I mean, seriously, if something had changed within Joseph and he wants to do something big, how about, how about giving some money to orphans or to widows? How about saying, you know, I want to I keep the memory of Jesus alive. And so let's take significant amounts of my money and, and put it somewhere. And let's, let's guard my position because my position is one of influence. I can actually make a difference from here. And so I'll hold on to my position and I'll give money away to fund things that are of importance. You don't take this whole mass of his life and throw it away on a meaningless gesture. Here's my tomb. Dead body, go lay in it. Why? I am guessing that um, most of the time we don't look at this passage, if you've read it as a financial parable. It doesn't really appear to be about money. But I think it's at the core of how we live our lives, for right or for wrong. Something had altered within Joseph. In another passage, a parallel passage, in Mark, it says, he was now one who was waiting for the kingdom. Which means something had altered in terms of where his affections lay. And I'm going to put it relatively simple. There's two ways to look at life. And of course, as I always explain, there's never two ways to look at life but it's a helpful measure. There are two ways to look at life in terms of where our priorities are and where our affections are. And the one of those is, I see me at the center of the universe. And if it's at all possible, I'd like all of you to orbit around me. Really, the sole problem that I can tell in the universe right now is you all not living your lives around me. And if you would, that'd be awesome because then I'd be happy. As opposed to that is a view of life that's often viewed as Christian, which is not. Which says, I'm not the center of the universe. In fact, I don't matter at all. I don't care for my own life. I only care for other people. I shouldn't be concerned for my own well-being or my own finances or my own security. I should only care about others. Years ago, there was a book written by um, Gail Sayers. Gail Sayers was a, a great, great running back for the Chicago Bears whose, whose uh, career was cut short by a knee injury and a solid human being. And he wrote a book, which I read when I was a kid, called I Am Third. And I Am Third come, came from a quote that he had said he lived his life by. And it was this, God is first, my friends are second, and I am third. Now, when I read that, I thought, wow, that's, that's impressive. And I think most of us, if we look at that, would say, yeah, you're right. There's two ways to look at life. There's that wrong way with me at the center, and there's the right way that says God is first, my friends are second, I am third. I think that's absolutely false. And it's absolutely false in that way that is so close to being true that it can really screw you up. Things that are really wrong will not mess you up too bad. Things that are almost true can tear your life apart. Why is that not really what it is. Nobody can live that way. Am I really going to say that Chris matters, but I don't? I'm only going to care about how his life goes, not mine. JP, he matters. I don't. I'm going to live only for other people. You know who lives that way? Nobody. You can't pull that off. And so what most of us end up doing is we feel guilty about our lives. We know, well, I shouldn't have myself at the center of the universe. And so then we go to this other extreme that says, I'm in the margins and I don't matter. And something inside of us says that's not really right. And yet we feel like that's what Christianity calls you. Isn't Isn't that what Jesus says? Okay, here's the deal. I died for you. I'll forgive you. And now what you got to do is you got to forget about yourself. Just care about other people okay, right, I understand. That's a, that's, you know, I guess in the grand scheme of things, that's a decent deal. I'll get eternal life. I get forgiven for my sin. And what I do is I spend the rest of my life sort of paying for it by being indifferent to my own life and caring about others. It's so hopelessly flawed. It's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Not love your neighbor in spite of yourself. Not love your neighbor, not yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The view of Christianity that is far more whole is not one which calls us to negate ourselves. It's one that opens up our heart to bigger affections, to something greater that sees us fully in the flow of that. Not the dominant part of life, but certainly not kicked to the margins. It's when our heart... Loves connecting with God and others at the very core, which does not negate us. It actually gives us life. You see, if you stay in this position, this is what you will do with your money. You will consume. You almost can't do any other thing because you've bought into the myth that the more you give yourself, the more life you'll get. There's a passage. Jesus tells a parable early on in the same book in Matthew. And a very short, very simple parable. And this is what he says. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. The core of an uncommon life is where we believe life will be found. In this passage, this is what Jesus says. The common way to live looks really broad. Many find it. In that common view of life, I buy into a wisdom that says, the more that I bring into my life, the more that I take for myself, the happier, more satisfied, more secure I'll be. And so I consume. I'm, I'm not trying to be selfish. I just, how else would I live? I consume because it's broad the more I bring into my life the better off I will be and sometimes someone will say I'll consume I will hoard I'll become the best saver ever and there's nothing wrong with saving it's the concept that my life is found through what I grasp hold on to or spend and so somewhat unintentionally people become vehicles for us tools They become tools to make us happy. And we live in such a way that my satisfaction depends on what I can get from you. Uh, Sometimes I'm over here going, well, I've got to try to give a little bit so I don't appear like a horrible human being. But at core, what I believe is that the more I bring into my life from others, the more satisfaction I'll get. And what Jesus says is this He goes, it's really broad. It's huge. It looks like the right way, doesn't it? But then it narrows and it actually collapses in on you. This is really the countercultural, counterintuitive nature of Jesus' teaching. He says, if you make yourself the center of the universe, if you think that you, what you consume, what you own, what you save, if you think that that will give you life, you're wrong. That will actually collapse on you because you're too small to base your entire life on. You shrink your life down to you. And we wonder why stuff is nice. But we wonder why consumption doesn't equal satisfaction. It should, right? The people who say that less is more, they just don't have as much. More is more. The more I bring it to my life, the happier I should be. Why does this not work? Jesus says, because you make yourself the focus of your life, your life will shrink. It'll collapse in and itself. So now there's another way. The other way is this. It looks very narrow. It's very small. Fewer of those who find it. It's uncommon. But if you walk through that narrow way, it expands and becomes Big and beautiful and rich. And it's a shift of affection and of priority. When I enter the narrow way, I say, My priority is to live connected to my God and to the people around me, to wade in to the fullness of the world around me. To not base my life on what I get, but to live satisfied by the affection I have for God and for others. And in the course of that, my life blossoms. It explodes. Because my soul is no longer trapped in this self-made prison of what I can bring to myself. We were not made to live that way. We were not made to live as if we were these isolated, consumptive beings. Kurt is right, that picture that Walker Percy pictures of the amoeba, consumptive beings who pull things in, we get what we want, we toss it back out. That's not the way we were supposed to live. We live with a new affection. An affection for God that's born out of his love for us, that broadens our hearts so that Joseph of Arimathea, one day, doesn't calculate what this is going to cost him. Doesn't think what's the best use of my gifts. Doesn't even think of it in terms of giving money away. His heart is connected to Jesus. He saw his friend just die. He said, you know what? I got a tomb. He doesn't. He's going to get tossed in a heap. He was convicted as a criminal. I'm going to give him my tomb. I don't believe he sat down with the calculator figuring this all out. His affection was connected with God. He was living openly and open-handed. And so he saw the place that he wanted to wade in, and he did it. See, that's the place of real beauty. When we live from the heart, not believing that our satisfaction doesn't matter, but believing our satisfaction is found in an affection for God and for others. And that's why in surprising ways our life then opens up. I think we get to the end of this series. No, I'm actually pretty sure. One of the great dangers that could come to the end of this series is we talk about money. Money is critically important for our lives. It can bring us to slavery. It can bring us to freedom. But it's easy for us to get to the end of this series on money. And for any number of you, I could make this work. I can make you feel terribly guilty about how you spend your money and bring it to you a place where you said you're over here. I'm not supposed to matter. Yeah, Bruce is right. I should give more money away. That'd be the right thing to do. Now, really, gee, I can make that work for us. More money comes in the doors. And if I did that, I would absolutely defraud you. Because I would teach you the wrong thing. I would teach you that your satisfaction is still found in how much you consume. And what you do, sort of as your payment for living any way you want, is you toss some, maybe a lot, into a pot of virtue. That'll kill you. It's a common way to live. There are people who give little and there are people who give lot who live a common way which is still believing satisfaction is found in what they can generate not in a new affection an affection for their God and affection for their others that makes them alive and that makes them freely engage the world around them. Most of the people I know whose generosity I greatly respect they don't seem to know they're generous. They'll do something and I'll remark on it to them and they'll almost be surprised because they didn't calculate, wow, this would be a big gift. This would be great to do. They somehow have learned that satisfaction is found in an open heart. And so for them, it's almost self interest. They love living freely. Because the heart of an uncommon life is a life that's free. On the walls out there, backside, there is a fairly complicated mural, graffiti mural that was painted by some people whose names I will not tell you. Because they came and did it requesting anonymity pretty confident from what I know of them that what they didn't do is they say, you know what, we've been spending an awful lot of time on ourselves, painting the things that we like. Hey, let's give some of our time. Let's calve off 30 hours of time to the church. That would be a good thing. Boy, that would be generous. And let's paint something in the outside of the wall. And let's stay anonymous, but let's leak it. Out of a heart that simply wanted to engage in the world around them, out of a new affection born out of their relationship with the God who loved them, they said, let's do this. They dreamed up a mural and they longed simply to give it away. And whenever I've said something to them, they still don't understand what the big deal is. I wish I was that generous. I kid you not. There are people at Warehouse and at other places that stun me with the freedom in which they live. Some of you today, as I talk about this, there's a part of you that goes, Man, I do not want to live a consumptive life. I don't want to define myself by what I have or by what I do. I want to live free with a new affection. And yet, what then you get that sinking feeling? Because in your head is your checkbook and your savings account, or not. And you realize that money has trapped you. And you realize that even if there was a need, something, an uncommon moment that you wanted to move into, you can't. You're not free. Debt has become your master or your purchases had become your master and you never saw it coming. And yet it happened. If that's the case, I understand. And I know for many of you, that's heartbreaking. There's a way out. Jesus does not invite you to start to give some more money. Jesus invites you to a life of expansion and generosity and freedom. There's a way out no matter where you start. One of the things we're doing at the end of this series is we're offering a financial course that's out of uh, Dave Ramsey, who's a nationally known financial counselor. And we've looked at his material, our financial people have, and are impressed both by the biblical basis and the sheer logical, logistical integrity of the material. And the goal of that will be for you, if you're stuck and your finances have trapped you, to help you to to see the way out for the sake of your soul, for the sake of finding satisfaction where it really lies. I'm encouraging you, if that's the place and that's what really hits you today, you would long to live a free and expansive life and you feel like you can't right now, you really need to go in that class because it'll help you to move there. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, in our culture, with our wealth, incredible wealth we have, it has mastered us. You look at it and go, how did this happen? How did we get this much and it gave us this little freedom? Because I'll just speak for myself. I live too common. Not nasty. Not overly selfish, but too common with beliefs that are not truly informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too common a view of life. That somehow we find satisfaction in consumption or even in giving. When really, we find satisfaction. We find life and a new affection, which frees our heart to live generously and expansively. And then, money becomes useful, even beautiful. We can enjoy it, give it away, we can save it because it no longer masters us. It no longer has the power of life and death over us. My hope is by the end of this series that something will shake in each one of us about how to live an uncommon life and that we'll settle for nothing less than a free and generous and an expansive life that will show up everywhere in how we live toward one another and how we give and how we buy and how we love. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us to live an uncommon way? The common is just too common. It's too easy. It's pretty deeply ingrained. I pray that even in this worship set, what you will bring home to us is the power of a new affection. That what apparently overtook this guy several thousand years ago was that he could live a different way, that pursuing his own kingdom didn't cut it. That not out of duty or out of necessity, he wanted to give his life away because he was loved by you and now long to live connected. Would you give us the power to push aside false guilt and duty? Would you give us the power to push aside a belief that consumption can give us life? And instead, even in this next 20 minutes or so of worship, by your Spirit, would you raise our hearts to a new place to see that our connection with you brings life, our connection and affection for others brings life? Make us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to receive the offering. As we do so, if you're here visiting or new here, or you just have questions, there's these connecting cards. Drop whatever question you have, whatever thoughts you have. If you want to give us some information, get our newsletter, and you can drop them in the offering uh, basket when it comes around. You know, at the end of the service, I'm going to talk a couple of emails I'm going to be sending out, but if you don't think we have your email address, connection, you want to be connected by us, go ahead and put it in here, drop it in the offering baskets. We do the offering at this point in our service as a visible reminder of what we believe, that the love of God has gripped our soul, and so we long to live lives that are given away. In response to that, we give.